happening now, we'd like to welcome no one viewing this live, according to my wife, <laughs> across North America and the United States. But approximately 500 people per day that may be tuning in daily. This is the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, September the 27th, 2017. My wife is really not sure about this hat, and I think my daughters have thought, Dad has gone over the edge. But my name is Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 67. And I um, perhaps should not reveal the employment that I have given the hat that I'm wearing. But, you know, we've been talking about tinfoil hats for a long time. And there's a few articles that just push me over the edge tonight. So I am thrilled to be here and still gainfully employed by an anonymous school in the local area. Uh, joined, as always, by Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana. Jason, how are you this evening? I am well, sir, and I am joining you from actually pretty nice Missoula today. It was 74 degrees and clear skies, so we have a little bit of reprieve from the cold, wet weather that we welcomed very much so to put out the fires, and now um, we're enjoying hopefully a nice fall. And here in Missoula, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that's, that's housed on the University of Montana campus in the fabulous Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences. Um, and I also think tech is swell. So uh, on that note, Wes, where shall we start this week? All right. Well, for those of us that may be new to the show we'll just or, or not, we'll remind everyone you can get our links at edtechsr.com slash links. And we do have a live um, chat room, which I will be bringing up on my other screen. I actually think I'd like to start with an article I did not give Jason any time to see because I just just dropped it in. Um, but it is from the Register on August the 25th. Volkswagen engineer sent to the clink for three years for emissions busting code. And I think this is a great article to have as a writing prompt to talk about ethics in coding um, as no, Volkswagen got into some pretty deep water in the last year, maybe to six months, when it was revealed that they had actually coded their automobiles so that the emissions registered as less when they were being tested, and they actually had a much higher emissions level that may or may not have been compliant with the EU's guidelines as well as the United States and other uh, countries. And so the engineer responsible for designing the software that enabled this um, was fined $200,000 and sentenced to prison for 40 months, which is like three years. Um, and he had pled guilty last year to defrauding the federal government, violating the Clean Air Act in a plea deal. Um, what is, I guess when they, the judge said something basically to the effect that, you know, this is going to you know, send, you know, shockwaves, you know, through the coding community. I, I listened to this uh, or heard about this on the Security Now podcast. And um, one of the things that they had talked about was that this actually was kind of a low, a lower level engineer. There were higher level engineers and executives involved in this. So, you know, this brings up things like you would have heard at the Nazi war criminal trials in Nuremberg. I was just following orders and things like that. But, you know, holding a coder responsible for, the effects of, uh, you know, for, for the, for what they, for the implications of the code that, that they wrote, you know, the hope is that people, coders are going to maybe think twice before being asked by their boss, hey, violate the law. So thought about this one, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, I, uh, even though coder is uh, maybe a new interpretation of responsibility in regards to this, um, Lower-level white-collar criminals have been held responsible for violations of, of regulations and other laws for years. And I think that, I mean, this story was disturbing in itself. Like, I, Volkswagen is a very trusted brand name um, internationally and was considered to be um, a, a guardian of the middle ground and high ground regards to uh, 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 advanced and expensive and high-quality automobiles. And I know that I, I was actually in the market for a Volkswagen um, before all this came out, uh, we had been talking about replacing a car uh, three or four years ago, and uh, we ended up going with a Ford, which I wouldn't have guessed to be the case. But there were crossover-like cars from Volkswagen that were spendy but worth it because we felt like it was a good investment. But when this um, uh, when this story broke initially, it kind of scared us away from the brand. But it's good to see that that the justice is coming to um, to those that were impacted by this. And yeah, I think that 
you know, uh, the, the engineering may be different than it was in, in times past where uh, a computer engineer and someone that was designing, for example, a faulty building might have considered to be a, a different responsibility on when crimes or regulatory things were, were, were amiss. But I think it's good that, that, that this has happened and I think it's, it's headed in, in ultimately the right direction. And, you know, for me, it's, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a brave new world, right? That there's a, uh, when this story initially broke, it, it blew my mind a little bit because, you know, it's one thing that if your car, you know, uh, is giving uh, too high of emissions and, you know, you're held responsible for that. But in this case, that was true. But, you know, they had cleverly worked around regulatory systems with code. So, um, you know, very different way that we you know, impact um, uh, the world around us. Absolutely. All right. The ball is tossed in your court. Where would you like Thank to go you. next? Thank um, you. Google has announced, well, first of all, uh, maybe a big picture, a quick one. Uh, happy 19th birthday, Google. Um, it's Google's 19th birthday today. And I still have fond memories of 1998 and 1999 when I was doing trainings for teachers and the Helena School District. And I told them I had heard of this new search engine called Google. And it's a strange name, but it's so much better than Dogpile. And obviously, you know, it's it's been a kind Dogpile. of a pile. Boy, I there's know. something I haven't heard from in a long yeah. time. I remember Dogpile, that. Metacrawler, uh, Alta hey, Vista. Alta Vista, man. Remember for years, um, and I and I love him, but uh, uh, Alan November would would tell stories as far as Alta Vista and your search skills and how yep. we needed to, yeah, brush up on our Alta Vista filtering. Sorry. So Sorry Google that. has obviously replaced. Um, uh, no, you're good. Google's obviously replaced, uh, you know, uh, all those search engines, but happy 19th birthday to them. And, um, you know, considering that you and I are using a Google property right now um, in order to broadcast this podcast, um, you know, obviously lots of impacts in our lives. But the more important one that I wanted to uh, talk about um Slides has announced a bunch of updates, and the reason why I mention this one is first because the updates are um, pretty great. Uh, Google Slides has gone from being, in my mind, a kind of low-level tool to something that I now trust with 95% of my publications, and um, there are, um, you know, a, a lot of interesting things here that uh, uh, kind of make it a, a more of a full-fledged presentation software suite, but there are new diagrams that are available, the ready-to-use visualizations that you can put into, um, uh, uh, into um, a Google Slide presentation, something that mimics a similar phenomenon uh, to the good folks at uh, PowerPoint, so that's available now. There's a new grid view, which I'm surprised it hadn't uh, been available to this point, that mimics other presentation software suites that allows you to rearrange uh, slides in, in a great grid view. Um, there's also a skip slide feature where you can utilize either the remote control on your phone or if you use the presentation uh, 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 presentation um, view on uh, Google Slides on a laptop, you can skip a slide so you can kind of customize your, um, your slideshow on the go. Um, there's a couple of new add-ons, one of them which is very exciting to me that now Shutterstock and Adobe Stock have new add-ons to Google Slides where you can search their large stock art libraries and insert them right into your Google Slides presentation. I am personally a Shutterstock user. It's something that I absolutely love. It makes presentation creation and media creation so much easier because it has a wonderful archive of, of of uh, stock art that you can utilize inside of presentations, especially if you're utilizing the presentation Zen style, which I think both Wes and I have bought into fairly whole as presenters. And then there's some other things here that I'm not um, um, I'm not entirely certain what it means because I don't use some of these pieces here, but Google Keep is now more integrated into Google Slides, which means like Docs, which had a feature that you can put Google Keep Notes in a panel on the right-hand side. You can now do that in Google Slides and pull in information from the Google Keep system. So if you have text or graphics that's sitting around in Keep that maybe you threw in there on remotely um, or on mobile when you were trying to take notes or maybe something came to mind when you're at the line of the grocery store, you can just drag that right into uh, the slide presentation now. So that's pretty sweet. And I think for those that are constantly tweaking presentations, which I would imagine include both me and Wes, um, that would be a good, interesting feature. 
Um, and then the other one that I'm, I'm a little unsure about, uh, there's linked slides. Um, linked slides uh, basically take data um, from data sources and it allows you to push it into a live slide and update them automatically. And so I'm pretty sure this is sourced by uh, something hooking into a, a Google spreadsheet. Not entirely sure because I, I read through a couple of times and I couldn't really wrap my brain around this. But if this is true, um, what a great way if you're presenting a presentation fairly regularly where you can present up-to-date statistics that are updated um, either from a data poll from a database or from something you're keeping in, in a spreadsheet. So, um, again, a lot of great um, uh, uh, things here for Google Slides. So I do have a pitch for Google Slides I want to make for a moment. But uh, next, Wes, uh, I, are you still a mostly Google Slides user? Absolutely. Uh, I've made the transition. In fact, I, somebody had retweeted a 2009 presentation I did out in Oregon in Portland at ITEC, SC something, uh, called Copyright for Educators. I was loving SlideShare at one point, uh, was loving, you know, uploading my slides there and, and kind of doing stuff after the fact. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, LinkedIn bought them, and I guess if you have audio and uploaded it, it doesn't work anymore because I'd spent a, a, quite a bit of time, you know, making some different presentations. Yep. Visible. I'll put that actually in the show notes. It has like over 2,000 views. It's probably my most popular slideshow ever. But I just, you know, drank the Kool-Aid, literally, right? I mean, Google, as far as being able to have the updated versions, the clickable links, the embedded video, um, and this also has to do with, you know, a few, not, not that many years ago, um, internet connections, you know, in schools and even at conferences were just much less reliable and robust than they are today. And so I was downloading all of the videos that I was going to show. I was embedding those inside a keynote presentation. The internet could completely be off and, and I would be fine. And a few years ago, it just, along with the fact that I could tether to my phone, as long as I was not in a very, very rural area, you know, I probably, I would have LTE or 4G connectivity. And, and so that, you know, just became transformative. So fully into the Google slides and, you know, Jason, you've shared, I think slides carnival. And then there's another one mm -hmm. for templates. Do you remember what the other one is or was it just slides carnival? We'll have to look back. It's in the show notes. If you want to go I think into it, our There's another one, but I think slides carnival is the main one. Yeah, and I mean that that's been phenomenal. I've helped my wife put together, you know, some some presentations and just really need to, you know, have have some other backgrounds and things like that to utilize. So, the Google Slides Kool-Aid is good and it is wonderful to see how the tools integrate together and that's along with the presentation Zen model of sharing, you know, images and and minimal text, I think encouraging um encouraging teachers to be able to use um be able to use Google Slides with students and on a regular basis. I'm not seeing a delay, but there, there was a little bit for you. So I don't know. Hopefully our audio is, is okay for you guys out there. Maybe I need to do some adjustment. I haven't restarted my router in a while. Well, one thing I will say is that that Google Slides is also my, my almost 100% uh, slide uh, presenting uh, platform of choice, but something that I really had to do to be able to do that, I used to work pretty hard on PowerPoint presentations and make lots of tweaks to them, and I had several visualizations that I had developed that I really like, uh, pull-out quotes and things that I utilized to show off uh, uh, quotations from research reports and, and web pages, and um, I... I, I was getting very used to that. There was a three or four year period after I'd given up a keynote um, on the Mac side that I was uh, pretty much a PowerPoint guy and had figured out a lot of the tweaks to make things right there. And it was hard for me to move to slides because initially the image manipulation tool set wasn't nearly as robust as it was in other presentation software suites. But not only has that changed fairly dramatically in the last few years, uh, its simplicity, I think, is one of its biggest benefits in that it really doesn't allow you to make big, sloppy, over-designed presentations. You can stay very simplistic and utilize that as a uh, kind of a design precept within that system. And I couldn't agree more that one of the best benefits of slides is that you have an easy sharing mechanism to where you can make your slides public without having to put them elsewhere to do that. So um, I think these are all wonderful um, uh, advancements. I have downloaded the Shutterstock add-in and plan on connecting it to my Shutterstock account, and I can't wait to see if it's as easy as it purports to be there. But it's, it's pretty exciting stuff, and so I'm glad to see that particular system is getting updates.
We want to say welcome to Peggy George, who's joining us live in the chat. And anybody else who may uh, want to join us live, uh, you can send us questions. We're happy to interact. And uh, in fact, Peggy has been knighted as able to share links too. So one of the things they've done with Google Hangouts, which is actually good, has allowed you to do that, but you have some control over that. Um, I, while we're on the topic of Google and Google goodness, I want to mention uh, two things. One, which is an update this week, and the other, which has been around for a while. The first one that's been around for a while is Team Drives for G Suite. And so I've dropped a link in uh, from... I guess it's the Google Learning Center. What can you do with team drives? But one of the challenges for schools and other organizations making the move to Google Apps or what's now called G Suite is that the sharing of folders is different, quite a bit different than it is when you are, you know, using a Windows file system and having shares and, you know, whether, even if you're doing that with Macs as we do, uh, it's just different. Now it's beneficial because you know, in the past, at our school, for instance, you had to be locally connected to the network in order to get to the shared drives that we have for different, uh, you know, divisions and then different departments and teams and things like that. It is possible to set up what's called a VPN, a virtual private network connection um, that people can dial into, and then they end up getting a local IP address, and basically their computer, whether they're at home or a coffee shop, you know, wherever, will act similarly, but it slows things down, and it's a hassle to be able to do that. Plus, a lot of schools have limits on how many VPN connections they could do, et cetera. And it's, you know, when I was teaching last for UConn schools, that wasn't something they would just give me um, as a teacher. You know, I asked for it, and they're like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. And so uh, that means that you can't get to those files when you are, you know, away from school. So wonderful that Google has the opportunity to let you access everything, but especially going through the browser, it gets very confusing. So we have, uh, I have, as the as one of our admins of our, our G Suite domain, um, turned on drives. I've opted to just turn it on for faculty and staff, not for students. Um, I've heard a few other folks on podcasts, you know, talk about kind of students going crazy with all kinds of, of team drives, et cetera. That may be something we look at in the future, but we're starting off with this on for, for faculty and staff. We're migrating our folders that we've had on shares. And we, in some cases, we already have, but they've just been shared by an individual. And one of the big benefits of the team drive is that if somebody leaves, the ownership issues don't come in. In fact, my wife was telling me a story about her previous school where someone had set up a whole bunch of forms and things that they used for HR, and they don't, they didn't have a Google suite in, even to, to have control of that person's account. Anyway, the person left, all those forms left, you know, that, that's kind of a mess. So by putting things in team, drive right. you're able to uh, organize things a little better and have the sharing um, you know be more have more continuity it, it, when you have personnel changes and things like that related to that is the application that you can use on your computer in order to locally sync files and so up until you know this week basically the only option you had as a G Suite user was the Google Drive app. And so uh, as of uh, Monday, Google finally got released what they call Drive File Stream. In fact, I probably ought to write a post about this. I'm sure this will be covered well by um, ShakeUp Learning and Casey Bell, you know, and, and these and different folks that are really into our Google updates. But uh, if if you're a G Suite user, now you have the opportunity, and I, I put the link in, to download with that G Suite work account uh, what's called Drive File Stream. And that allows you to access team drives, which is a really big benefit, but it also uh, limits what downloads locally. So on Chromebooks, even on, you know, Mac laptops with solid state drives, a lot of times we're actually seeing a reduction in the amount of local storage where you may have had a 500 gig drive, but now you're down to 256 or maybe 128. And you may have, you know, even now, maybe not terabytes, but I mean, you can easily have lots of gigabytes of data in your Google Drive, and you really don't want all of that locally downloaded. In fact, that can cause a pretty big bottleneck on your on your network with with all these cloud services. You know, if people are having the whole thing, you know, download and back up. So anyway, we are in the midst uh, this week of testing this with our technology team. Um, the uh, Drive file stream. You can still use another option, which is called Backup and Sync. Backup and Sync is available to uh, individual users, like just with your own personal Gmail account. But Drive File Stream is what they recommend for the enterprise, and that came out on um, 
uh, Monday, and I'm pretty excited about that. So, Jason, have you guys uh, yeah. gone down that road of transitioning from more traditional window shares to, to Google? And what are your thoughts on that whole that whole thing? Well, we uh, we had the advantage of, of, of starting late, I guess. So in 2010, when we were adopting systems, and, and to be clear, like I might be a nerd and I might like the command line occasionally, but I am not an IT director by training. So I, I when we started up in 2010, I was the de facto IT director from our organization. In fact, I, I still am. I, another gentleman and I on, on staff handle all the IT stuff for, for our organization. And it wasn't really an option for us with the amount of remote workers that we would have to be able to utilize something like that. So we um, uh, adopted Google um, Apps in spring 2010, uh, months before we opened up to students, and we've never looked back. And so we've always really been all about the the, the G Drive and um, the Google Suite for education. I'm thrilled myself about the Stream app. I think the Stream app is a really, I, I've, I was in the beta test of it, and I utilized it on a a uh, low SSD drive size laptop, and I found it to be useful. I had access to the files. I'm surprised how quick it is that if you double click on a file, um, assuming you're on, on even a decent internet connection, it, it quickly loads that file for you seamlessly, even though it's streaming it from the cloud. And even video files that uh, are, you know, three, four, five, six hundred megabytes in size, I've been able to double click into VLC, which is an open source media player um, on Macs and PCs, and starts playing um, almost right away and so it's pretty great and I think that the, the note that even though drive sizes have been getting bigger over time that uh, a lot of especially consumer level electronics tend to be working on smaller drives smaller or smaller sized faster drives so SSD drives at you know 128 gigs and software can be a good percentage of that so I think it's a really great idea and I'm glad Microsoft is going with it so cheers to Google. Absolutely. And shout out to Peggy George, who's dropped a wonderful link into our chat, and I will add that to our show notes and just put this into the, the document. Uh, it's called Using Google Team Drives to Create and Share Lesson Plans, and the author is uh, Nicholas Keith, who is in Keith Blend, and he is um, obviously out of Texas. Uh, and so anyway, that it's exciting. I mean, collaboration, right? It's it's important and be able to find your stuff, you know, literally this, you know, my, my wife and I were going to going to work back and forth now that she's teaching at our school. And so she was talking about this. So many people sharing stuff with her on Google and it just feels like things are being thrown into a big room, right? Not in a folder, not in any kind of cabinet. It's like, here's all your stuff. And so it just depends. You know, some people thrive on that, and Google is wonderful for search, right? So as long as you have a meta, some meta information, something in the title, something in the document, you can find it again. But many of us are very used to file structure and organizing, and I guess it just kind of depends on your personality style. But there is that opportunity with team drives, uh, and, and then this, this has actually been important for us at school to sell the idea of, of switching over is that in the case of the Google Drive app, you can have it on your folder, like on Windows, right? It maps, it looks like a, a Windows shared folder. And so I think this is very important as folks make transitions, right? We're not just talking about early adopter folks and a limited number of people. We're talking about, you know, scaled across the organization, everybody, you know, accessing things and being able, being, needing to find stuff. And so being able to have that file structure, having it in the case of a Mac user in the Finder, in the case of Windows, you know, in your File Explorer, whatever, uh, it's important stuff. So... I would love to also hear feedback if other folks are, are going down that road. We heard we had one of our middle school teachers today, um, you know, ask, hey, can we go ahead and set this up for our department? And yes, absolutely. And she was finding that when she uploaded from her computer, it maintained file structure. But when she was trying to just move stuff over, it didn't. So there's some settings in, in the admin panel about migrating. And so we're just going to have to keep exploring about that. But Great stuff and very timely things that Google is doing, I think, in response to, like we've mentioned, the size of file, of, uh, uh, the size of uh, hard drives um, and, and just, you know, the need that people have. You don't really need to have a, a download probably of everything, right? It's in the cloud. You're going to trust it. So, right. Yep. Yep. All right, man. I think it's time to put on the hat. Is that okay if we do that? <laughs> that's is. our new way of introducing uh paranoia hour par paranoia stories like putting on the hats 
That's right. So in, in case you're wondering, uh, you can just go right on over to the English Wikipedia for tinfoil hat, and you can uh, read the background of this. The concept of a foil hat for protection against interference of the mind was mentioned in a science fiction short story by Julian Huxley, the tissue, tissue culture king, first published in 1926, which the protagonist discovers that caps of metal can block the effects of telepathy. Well, obviously we're not, well, maybe not obviously, but we're not talking about telepathy tonight, but we will talk a little bit about the surveillance state and about, um, you know, some realities that are happening, you know, in our society and how we may want to make some choices about things that we share on social media um, and, you know, needing to, to, to have advocates and support advocates for privacy. So I'm going to start with a Forbes article from September 25th, 2017. Did Mexico drop $5 million on this unlimited Uber stealth spy tech? And so what this article reveals, and I've heard some talk about this in terms of, of just the way that globally cell phone networks are set up. Some of these vulnerabilities, by the way, are part of the reason some folks recommend if you do two-step verification, not doing a, a, a SMS-based verification, but doing an authenticated app-based verification. Um, there is a vulnerability to cell phone networks globally that's called SS7, signaling system number seven. And so if you have access to um, this part of the network, you only need either the cell phone number or the IMEI number, which is like a MAC address on a computer. It's a unique identifier in order to have full access to phone calls and text um, and location of any mobile phone user globally, right? So this is incredible because we have a lot of relationships that different, you know, state security and military organizations have, and the laws are different in different countries in terms of what's allowed and what's permitted. And so we've talked on the show just briefly, I think, about, I'm trying to think of the name of it, um, but it's a Stingray. It's a Stingray uh, device that different law enforcement agencies in the United States have purchased and utilized. What it allows them to do is basically spoof a cell phone tower, and so they can move this into an area and they're, they are become basically, it looks like they're a, they're a cell phone data provider. Uh, much in the same way, by the way, that when you go into uh, a coffee shop, you know, somebody can create their own Wi-Fi access point, call it AT&T or whatever. And if you automatically connect to that SSID or that Wi-Fi network, you may be connecting to their device. That's a man in the middle attack. You know, they're able to capture all your information. Well, governments are doing this too. And so uh, there is a record of a Latin American country, which is suspected to be Mexico, of purchasing uh, from these from an Israeli company for five million dollars, you know this kind of technology to be able to do this. So, Jason, what do you think? Is this anything to be concerned about? Could you see any way this might go awry in the world of privacy? Um, no, and in fact, I just started like sending my credit card numbers over text to my wife. So I think I feel very secure that we're all good to go there. Um, first and foremost, if it was only $5 million that Mexico paid for uh, that technology, that's a heck of a bargain um, because the bottom line is is that that gives you access to so much unfettered information, especially if we're just talking about the cell phone number or IEMI number uh, for a phone. That's all you need to be able to to then access text and, and other pieces there. Um, I it, it would be an extraordinary hack uh, and extraordinary access on the level that even the NSA might be a little jealous of. So the bottom line is, is that if they paid just $5 million for that, they got a pretty sweet bargain out of it. But, you know, um, when devices become ubiquitous, which they are, um, when our reliance on it becomes almost universal, which it is, when we're in an era where our lives are becoming inextricably linked to that technology, right, that uh, uh, it has entered in our lives in ways that no other technology in the history of human beings has, and you're not developing security and safety into that, it should cause you pause. And I think that's, you know, all these stories, and you know, we talk about this pretty regularly here, but all these stories about hacks and data and people sniffing devices and uh, the sea cleaner thing we talked about last week, uh, the uh, Wes, you had, had uh, 
uh, tweeted out a story that said the uh, story from last week, which was the software sea cleaner had a hack inserted into it. And as it turns out, it was aimed only at a handful of uh, computer networks, corporate computer networks. And apparently the payload was only downloaded to 40 total computers. And it's not entirely clear what the payload or the purpose of the payload was. The bottom line is, is that in a world where those things exist, you need to have at least a minimum amount of paranoia uh, about the way you're using the devices and the way it's storing your data. Of course, the question is, is it going to change anything about the way you compute? So Wes, what about you? Does that change the way you think about uh, computing, computers, mobile phones, tablets? We've been talking about this for a while, and I have confirmed this week, pretty excited. I'm headed to Cairo, Egypt in November for uh, a conference. It will be happening for the second time. And I think that I'm going to um, – I think I'm. I think I'm going to look at getting a burner phone. So I need your advice on, you know, eBay or whatever that I should pick up. With T-Mobile had something where we could get another line for basically nothing, and so I have this line that I'm not using. So I think I'll, I'll activate it on that line. You know, this is probably over the top. I might not even need to worry about it. But if you think about uh, a country being able to get access to, if I mean. What this means, like we, we've talked about um, agencies that are, uh, well, customs agencies that are going to be, inter, you know, you're going to talk to them as you're going in and they're going to say things like, um, you know, can I you know, open your phone? You know, can I borrow this? And then they can suck all of the data off of your phone, all of your contacts, addresses, things like that. Uh, just having your phone number or your IMEI number, you know, with something like this is is pretty staggering, you know, what that means. And let's think about it. People's cell phone numbers today, uh, it's not like a social security number, but it's become permanent, you know. Like I don't I don't plan to ever change my cell phone yep. number. And so this this means on a digital citizenship note and for students, I was just actually counseling our 17-year-old daughter this week who was posting on Facebook about, hey, please support our drama department. We're fundraising. She was going to put her email and her phone number, cell number. I said, no, honey, never, ever, you know, share that cell number publicly uh, or your email really for spam, but certainly your cell number. And so, yes, I think that's going to affect uh, what I do. I may not I may not travel with, with my phone or with my regular phone at all. Uh, you know, I thought about maybe wiping it and then bringing it, but anyway. And again, that's probably overkill at this point, but these capabilities should definitely have us raise our eyes because just be, you know, if it's something that a country like Mexico or whatever, you know, possesses, I mean, when was the ad for Apple's G4 that it was illegal to export because it was considered a weapon, right? I think that was in the mid-1990s, and there's some really, you know, clever ads, and Apple made a big deal of that. But literally, you know, the Department of Defense had that. It was a supercomputer, and they made it illegal to export that out of the out of the country to certain places. I mean, that's probably the Apple Watch today, right, or it's going to be soon in terms of computing capability. So, Probably, hopefully, we're going to have advocates who are going to push the cell phone companies to close these vulnerabilities, to set up firewalls. Um, you know, many of the things that were designed in the past were not designed with security in mind. And so, um, yeah, I think that's it's a it's an eye opener. Um, I, I kind of connect to that. Um, a post, actually, that Doug Belshaw, who co-hosts a great podcast I've listened to uh, several times now with Die Barnes. It's called Today in Digital Education, the Tide Podcast, and they're on Twitter, just Tide Podcast. And his post is why I just deleted 77,500 tweets I've sent out over the last 10 years. And I've got a link to him on Mastodon. He's one of the people that encouraged me to check out Mastodon, which is this federated social media network um, that, you know, it's like, like email. Anybody can set up their own server and they interact and, and interoperate. Uh, basically, it ties back to things we've talked about before, Jason, with the Note to Self podcast and their, their privacy um, experiment, or the privacy challenge that they had, and looking at the things that Facebook knows about you and how, based upon what you say you like and the kinds of places you visit and, th and these things, they build a profile about you and then are able to market to you. And of course, we continue to, to hear about these things with Russia and, you know, targeted ads and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, I don't know. Have you, you've made some changes, I think, haven't you, to, 
the Facebook, I went in and deleted a bunch of things that I had liked, I guess, when I saw some of that stuff. I'm not ready to go in and delete all my tweets or delete all my likes, but uh, I don't know. What, do, you, do you think there's something here in terms of our digital footprint and the ways in which, I mean, is this is this something to be concerned about or is that, yeah, I've got on a tinfoil hat, so in order to be taken seriously, I should probably take it off, but is, that, <laughs> right. is it just a bridge too far? Um, it, it is. I mean, it's concerning to me. I just think that at some point we're going to have to have a balancing set of activities that makes it okay again for for the general populace to engage in these tools, right? Like, I, I understand people that get off of Facebook. Uh, it's a time suck. It can be distracting. Um, sometimes it, it, it is encouraging of less than positive conversations about serious issues. Um, it can be an echo chamber because I do think Facebook tries to show you things that you like and we tend to like things even if we use Facebook for, for personal reasons. We tend to like things based on, um, you know, preferences, uh, political, economic, uh, personal and otherwise, right? So it's going to become kind of an echo chamber to you. But I still think there's incredible value um, in, in Facebook and, and social media that we're going to have to ca- like a counterbalance to, right? And so I'm assuming at some point you know, we, we figure this thing out. Uh, the other news that I don't think made it onto our spreadsheet today is that uh, Trump has called out uh, Facebook as, as as being biased against him um, uh, for whatever whatever that means, right? And uh, Facebook has uh, responded. Zuckerberg uh, spoke to the issue today, and I didn't get a chance to look at his detailed comments. But in essence, you know, like, if you're reading a bunch of stuff that says that, that you know, Trump's a goon, great. Um, that's probably a little bit because there is a fair bit of Trump is a goon information in the mainstream media, but also if your friends are generally of your political persuasion and dislike the president, then that's going to echo through you know, your feed in, in a consistent and predictable way. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I enjoy the fact that, that Facebook tries to feed me things I'll enjoy. It means that as a, uh, uh, an app addiction, it feeds it really well. I just don't know if there's an answer to it. And my hope is, is that we figure this out at some point and that there's a, you know, a set of tools for users, whether they're automated or, or personal, that we can kind of dig through this and live in, in a logarithmically uh, a dominated world. So, um, I think- yeah, I, I'm not near deleting anything. I'm not going to delete my tweets. I mean, I, I'm fine right now. Yeah, I think the key is to, is being able to take control over the information that you are in, in you know, taking in, uh, filtering, and not and the critical thinking piece is not just succumbing to the unknown algorithm, you know, but having some agency over that. And so I think that part of that's what Doug is wanting to do is to he still saved all his tweets. And I didn't know this. When you download your Twitter archive, any of us can download our Twitter archive. You can straight up put that on a website and it is linkable and connected and shows you by year and by month all your tweets. I have a little PHP app that's open source called TweetNest running at twitter.westfriar.com and and that has my archive but it also you know gets everything new there's what is it called when it runs there's a it's a it's a script or whatever that sort of pings and makes the script run it's been a while since i've done that and that stuff definitely stretches my my geek quotient of getting it going but anyway any of us can download the whole twitter archive um and so i just i think being thoughtful about the information that we're taking in, and I, I love tools that let us customize, you know, that uh, that feed. Um, back in the day, the RSS reader, I still use Feedly a little bit, you know, every once in a while. I use Flipboard with Twitter lists, uh, things like that. And so, yeah, I'm not going to be deleting my, my tweets either. But along these same lines of being aware of, you know, the privacy and surveillance implications, uh, Doug had mentioned on the podcast a interesting uh, post called why you shouldn't unlock your phone with your face and basic one of the things and this is factual okay we don't have to have the tinfoil hat on in the united states today uh, law enforcement can compel you to use your fingerprint or thumbprint to open up your cell phone however interestingly they cannot compel you to give up your passcode or your passphrase and by the way, we haven't maybe said it in this show and in a while, privacy is really an important thing, right? So even if I am not, as I am not, engaging in criminal activity or terrorist activity or something like that, 
Uh, privacy and the opportunity to engage in private conversation is really important, and it's an enshrined value that, although it's not explicit in the Constitution, it's implicit in our Constitution, and I would argue that it's a universal human right. It's not something that's specific just you know to one country or to the West or whatever. And so, anyway, I think this is interesting in biometrics and what we see happening. Um, I dropped a link that's from that. I think it's from that other article, Apple Insider, back in April of 2016, the average iPhone user unlocks their device 80 times per day. And at that time, 89% were using Touch ID, according to Apple. So anyway, with the new iPhones, we talked about that in the last show. You know, the iPhone X has this, you know, facial recognition. And evidently, Apple, as they pretty much always do when they come with a new technology, you know, they've made it considerably better, a lot of folks would argue, I think, than what's come before. So, um, yeah, those are those are some of our our tinfoil hat articles. And uh, I, I don't know. Do you do you think we need to fear biometrics or is this we're going to we're going to always have, you know, people concerned about implanting chips in the end of the world. Right. I mean, that, that that's going to be a universal. Right. Um, are you concerned about biometrics at all, Jason? You know, I, I am because, you know, big, powerful technology, but nothing about the way it's been handled thus far has been particularly challenging to me. So, you know, I again, I, I think we have to be aware of these things. I think there's not enough mainstream conversation about these issues, right? Like we've talked about this, uh, a topic like this about every other week or so. What, what What's interesting is that I'm, I'm glad I have... Uh, you know, a, 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 a smart friend. I can bounce this stuff off of once a week as part of this podcast. Like we process through a lot of these issues and causes me to think and find more media on it. But this is not appearing in your local newspaper. This is not appearing in, you know, the, especially in, in the last 24 months, uh, politics tends to be you know, the first half of, of, of every headline of, of every news source in the United States. You have to scroll down quite a bit past the, the main headlines to get to the good stuff, but this stuff is concerning, but it, the concerning part of it for me is that it doesn't feel like there's enough conversation going on about how to use these right, and I know, Wes, you like to then associate this back to technology ethics and the way we need to be teaching our students this information, and I want to echo that point now, that the people that are going to be making a lot of decisions based on this after a lot of us are gone are students now, right? And so we need to get them thinking about this, right? It's not just a game. It's not just a way to connect with your friends. It is a very powerful piece of equipment. I'm talking about your cell phone, your tablet, your laptop that must be treated with respect. And one of the ways to do that is to keep your eye on new technologies may have a wow factor to them, but you should always be thinking about what is the implication of me using this? And I think that's kind of been the crux of technology ethics. Absolutely. Mantra of Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility, and we all have great power today if we have a smartphone and we're connected to the Internet. So would you like to take yep, us to some absolutely. Amazon announcements? You put a bunch of those in the in the notes. I would. I'm glad you said that because I was going to suggest we go to that next. So we're in the middle of announcement season, uh, mostly related to, you know, uh, Christmas coming up. Uh, and next week, of course, is the Google announcements. And I actually chose not to put any of the Google rumor pages up tonight um, because I would like to wait for the actual announcements next week. But tune in next week to EdTech SR to talk about what Google announced. But this week, um, and, and again, I'm a little sad I didn't know this because I, I don't know if it was available live or not. I'm assuming it was. But Amazon announced a bunch of new products today. And I want to uh, not bury the lead. A lot of people were annoyed that there weren't new Kindles announced, that uh, it was Internet of Things uh, uh, items that dominated the announcements today. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, there are beautiful Kindles you can buy. I run a Kindle Voyager that's really amazing. Uh, they have their super new one super thin one that's really great. Uh, even their, their middle-of-the-road Kindles that have the uh, lit screens and the high-resolution screens are, are really great devices, but no Kindles, so let's ignore that for a moment. So let me tell you the things that were announced today, and Wes, let's play a little game I like to call, will Wes buy this or will Wes not buy this? And so we'll start off with the first item. There's a new Echo. It is $99. It's meant to replace the original and it is basically a, a relatively high-end speaker. It has both a dedicated woofer and tweeter and Dolby Sound uh, built right into the Amazon Echo. And functionality, it's the exact same as today's Echo at $179. The difference is... It is smaller, and all the renderings I've seen suggest that it's actually very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, the most common picture is kind of a gray material around it. I've seen a wood-covered uh, one that looks really great. So, Wes, the question's to you. Will Wes buy this or will Wes not buy this? 
you know, still tempted for school, still think that would be a fun thing to see what kids can come up with, being able to even track longitudinally the growth of what you can ask your Amazon Echo, your Google Home. But no, I'm not wanting to not wanting to bring that into the house at this point. But we do have Siri, right? And she's always listening. So there we've already brought some of that in. Yep, she is. Okay, product number two, the Echo Plus. Uh, the $149 Echo Plus is the successor to the first generation Echo. It looks almost exactly the same. The difference is, is there is a bunch of, of more technological pieces to it, many of which people feel like were undercovered today in the announcement, but um, including building in some uh, wireless technology, Internet of Things wireless technology directly in the Echo, and they're actually giving away a Philips Hue bulb along with every Echo Plus uh, kind of a nudge towards the Internet of Things thing. So um, Amazon Echo, basically Generation 2, looks like the current Echo but has more interesting guts on the inside. And I know your answer to this, but quickly, Wes, want to purchase, not want to purchase? I don't think so. You know, I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, like what would – do you have a price, you know, like if it comes down on a lightning special, you know, how right. low is it going to be? And so I don't think so. But, gosh, the incremental change with this is just phenomenal, right? And we're just – we're seeing – we are seeing yep. exponential growth before our very eyes when it comes to AI and these kinds of capabilities put put in the hands of, of the consumer, which is really why we've got so much growth in it, right? When it hits the consumer market, um, then, you know the scale and, and the potential profits are, are generous. Um, but I would say, how about you? You're still the Google Home okay. user. Is there something that's going to get you to add an Alexa or an Echo or whatever? Oh, I just said the word. Sorry, I just said it off for somebody. Well, the Amazon device. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I have one of the aforementioned device I bought refurbished uh, a couple of months ago, and I'm actually mine sit next to each other. And I'll admit – um, I find myself going to the Alexa a little more than the Google Home. So uh, the Google Home is great, but I'm not quite there yet. So, and I like both these things today. If I were buying a new one, would both be on my my list as potential purchases. But I have the one that I have, and at some point, I could see maybe going out and uh, picking up one for another room. So, when the home control stuff comes and you can walk in, just not like Jean-Luc Picard, computer, you know. Play my my favorite classical yep. playlist. I mean, I guess you could do some of that already, but it, I don't know. I think I'm still I'm gonna wait. You can. Yep. Okay. Now here's the more bizarre stuff. So the next one, Amazon announced a two for twenty dollar product called Echo Buttons. It's basically like a little light up button that can allow you to play in like buzz in games and stuff. And I hear there was an interesting demo, um, but everyone has basically said, yeah, it's like a button for Alexa powered trivia games. So Wes, how much would you pay for that product? I'm just, I'm not drinking the Amazon Kool-Aid yet. I mean, as far as these products go, you know, ordering stuff all the time at school, um, you know, for, for our IT department and, and we're, we're prime members, you know, we're ordering stuff, but yeah, I just, I don't, I don't see it yet. Sorry. That's okay, not, that's next, not, that's not, $35. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get some, yeah, we need to get a bigger um, Amazon. On the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next, for $35, you can buy um, the Echo Connect, which allows you to hook a traditional landline to an Amazon Echo. So this is the way that uh, TechCrunch described it today. It connects your landline and gives nearby Echo devices the ability to tap them as needed. Echo devices are already able to make phone calls over VoIP or voice over IP, but what if your internet connection is down you need to place a call? It seems a bit edge casey, but I ditched my landline a decade ago, so what do I know is the writer uh, Greg Kumrumkarek uh, from TechCrunch. So um, I don't really understand this or even what the edge use case of it is, but for $35 you can buy um, the Echo Connect. Okay, uh, next on the list, um, Amazon has released a new gadgets API that allows uh, Alexa to connect to external devices. And one of the things that uh, journalists have talked about today is the old Billy the 
uh, I'm sorry, the big, big mouth Billy Bass, um, which was the talk to gag from the 90s where you, you'd say, hey, fish or something, you press a button and the fish would start talking and singing. Um, apparently, um, Alexa will be able to be fed into devices like that. So, Wes, now are you interested in an Amazon Echo? You know, I'm looking at the article you dropped in uh, comparing all eight Amazon Echoes, and I'm just thinking about fractured landscape, right? So many choices. I'm overwhelmed by the choices. I don't know where to turn, kind of like perhaps with the iPhone. Uh, You know, if a singing fish is going to be offered that has has AI and can answer questions, I think that may be what will push me over the edge, but... Don't see that integration yet. However, okay. we've talked about Good. this on the show. Ben Wilkoff mentioned, you know, a friend in, in the Denver area who had done some kind of connecting with the uh, the Google Home as far as being able to gather web data and, you know, that whole thing of being able to have some algorithmic control of of what, you know, that that's the whole agency piece. I'll be I'll be interested in that. So I'm excited to right. hear about them opening that kind of stuff up. If if this, then that is is. Uh, Probably already there to some degree with some certain devices with the Echo, but as that continues to mature, that's going to be exciting, and that may be my gateway drug, the trip, tipping point. There you go. And a couple other quick devices. Uh, they announced a Fire TV 4K, a $70 device that allows you to hook to a 4K television um, and stream video utilizing the Fire TV interface, which is kind of a hacked version of the Android operating system. Um, I will tell you, until I bought a, an Apple TV, new generation Apple TV about six months ago, this is my go-to streaming device. And for $70, what I assume is a pretty great um, uh, a built device based on my past experiences with even the cheap Amazon devices, it's pretty great. And have you ever used a Fire, Wes? I have not. I've been using the Chromecast on this TV. We, you know, got got donated. But, yeah, no Fire Sticks for us yet. Okay. And last, um, oh, there's, there's two more. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, just one more. The last one is the Echo Spot. Um, the Echo Spot is a $130 device that's basically a little tiny Amazon Echo that has a small screen on it, and it's basically being advertised as the end of the alarm clock. Now, I'll be honest, I thought the cell phone was the end of the alarm clock, so I'm a little confused by these massive number of alarm clocks that Amazon thinks it's disrupting. But it's basically a tiny little Echo meant to be bedside or counterside to do that. And I'll tell you, um, and I'll drop a link in the show notes about these devices. I don't know if you ever saw any of these when they came out. This would have been maybe six or seven years ago. But the first thing I saw when I saw this was the Chumby. Um, the Chumby was a, a small screen, maybe inch and a half screen device that I used for an alarm clock for about a year and a half that had an app architecture. This was before the release of, of uh, the uh, apps on the iPhone. So this is before you could download apps on the iPhone. So the Chumby was kind of like a pre-nightstand uh, uh, edition of an appable interface. So this looked like to a Chumby to me. But the Echo Spot would be a little tiny dot that you could put on a countertop or maybe on a nightstand. So as the final product, Wes, are you interested today in an Echo Spot? You know, if the price goes down more, the idea of an alarm clock and music makes me think about our daughters. I mean, we've def- in the last year, we've said, hey, we're all checking our phones in, you know, at bedtime. And that's been hard. And part of the you know, response to that is, but it's my alarm clock. I can't give up my cell phone. Um, so perhaps, perhaps. Um, but of course it's like, what, at what cost, right? Then every, everything, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is over paranoia about being concerned about all these things being recorded. Um, it probably is. So yeah, that, that may convince me, but I, I don't think the price needs to come down perhaps just a little bit more. There we go. So that's all the Amazon announcements. Um, I would encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, there are a couple of interesting articles to talk about some of the more advanced things, particularly the Amazon, the new Amazon Echo, the the big one, the $149 Pro version, apparently has a lot of antennas and broadcasting uh, capability to Internet of Things devices. So in the same way that Amazon really has been the leader of the Internet of Thing Things with the Echo, they're starting to expand, um, I think, that concept with their devices. So that's uh, all from World a la Amazon. 
So I think I'd like to briefly mention what we've carried forward from last week, a couple articles about digital rights management, DRM, and the W3C. The W3C is the World Wide Web Consortium that sets standards for the world when it comes to Internet and network connectivity. Um, digital rights management is being pushed by different copyright owners, especially you know, music industry, Hollywood, um, trying to limit the ability of folks to copy and illegally share um, files that are are copyrighted. Uh, TechDirt on September 18th had an article, EFF resigns from W3C after DRM and HTML is approved in secret vote. So there's a lot of, of acronyms there. Um, EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and they are guardians for privacy and openness and lots of goodness when it comes to, you know, the Internet and the web. And basically, uh, the, the consortium here, which is supposed to, again, really support openness and not necessarily, you know, the corporate interest, um, had a secret vote and has, has embedded uh, digital rights management. And so this, that's a big deal for EFF to go ahead and step down. And the other article that's underneath that is uh, Corey Doctorow, who is, uh, again, a very staunch advocate for openness and transparency, and he wrote an open letter to the W3C director, CEO team, and membership talking about, you know, what a huge letdown this is for essentially the values of the World Wide Web Consortium to cave into the corporate interests with DRM and being able to to put that in. So it's it's been interesting to see the the path of DRM and those kind of fights, you know, with the RIAA, the recording industry of America and and with Hollywood and um I guess I, you know, raised eyebrows because if something happens like this where the EFF is part of of a consortium they step down, it's it's a pretty big deal. So uh Jason was this is this a dark day for internet freedom and um, should 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 I be writing my congressman about this? Um, I I think it's not great news. I mean, I I think that if you want to add DRM to your media, that's your right to do so, but it shouldn't be written into standards in that way. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm not thrilled about it. Um, and I think the FF is right to continue to protest that because the bottom line is is that while I you know I I do know that undrm'd media is prone to be abused and 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 traded openly. Um, there is a pretty persuasive research to say that DRM doesn't actually increase profits. It just decreases the ability for people to access and then ultimately purchase media. So, um, you know, not, not great news for, for the world of, of, of electronic entertainment. On the topic of regulation, I think you dropped this article in from The Verge today, September 27th. It's time for Congress to fire the FCC chairman. Um, we've heard quite a bit from um, Ajit Pai, who is the uh, former corporate telecom fellow that Trump has put into place. You know, he's, he's the one advocating for the end of classification uh, of, of Internet as Title Title II, right, so that it can be uh, regulated. And uh, any comments on, on this article? Do you agree with the author Gigi Sohn? Um, I, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of troubling things about uh, the chair of the FCC, but I, I do think that there are some things there that Congress really does owe the American people a thorough investigation to. So a lot of these things I, I'll admit I don't understand. Like I, I can I can read through the article and have a, a, a general idea of what's going on, but the bottom line is is that um, it's troubling, and uh, we really need someone who's a champion for openness and a champion for uh, the consumer in that spot. And if they're if the consumer to them is internet service providers, then we we've gone down the wrong road. And I think I'd also echo what you said earlier about you know headlines. Uh, of course, I think we should be hearing probably more about Puerto Rico. We've got a family friend there who it's it's bad there, you know, and. Uh, Anyway, our, our yeah. headlines have been dominated with all kinds of natural disasters. Probably not hearing enough about fires in Montana, hearing, you know, tons about, uh, you know, Houston and, and Florida and, and hurricanes and things like that. But these are big things, especially when we talk about, you know, messing with some of the fundamentals of the Internet. Uh, we talk about things like whether or not we can, what, what can be regulated and what cannot. Uh, so I'm probably never, uh, I'm not going to link to it, but... Um, the uh, and am I even going to get his name right? Um, John Oliver, is that right? His stuff is never safe for work, mm -hmm. right? It's it's all it's always over the top. In fact, you don't I want to have any of your kids or grandkids anywhere near if if you're going to play that stuff out loud. 
But he, I just watched something on YouTube uh, last night that was talking about oligopolies and monopolies and consolidation and things like that. And so, you know, antitrust law has been around in the United States, uh, but we really have had the pendulum swing towards corporations and corporations being able to, to do just, a, just about everything that they want in terms of consolidation. There, there have been some limits on that. Uh, but I think there's a lot, a lot to be concerned with, and I think that it's unfortunate we're not hearing more about it. And so... I don't know how we shift and change that because mainstream media is kind of difficult to change, but at least we can talk about it here on the show to the four of you that are out there listening. No, we know there's more people. <laughs> right. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're at the top well, of the hour. Should we geek of the week it, sir? I was going to say, any other articles you want to draw out before we geek of the week? Nope. I think we're good. Uh, there's some other stuff that I want to mention at some point down the road, but they're, I would say they're developing stories. So our newsroom will keep an idea, uh, an eye on those for future episodes. All right. Well, what do you have for us for a geek of the week this week? Well, um, I, I can't remember. I, I, I checked to see if we, I'd shared this in the past and I don't think I have, but for those of you that always like the newest device, one of the challenges of updating a phone every year, for example, is to get the value out of your old phone. So when you are selling a used phone, and oftentimes, especially if you're buying premier stuff, your used phone does retain a, a whole bunch of value. So if you're not recycling, recycling that within your family as, as, as the friars do or, uh, you know, using them to, to create de facto internet, internet of things devices like I do, uh, then you may want to consider selling your phone. And a great place to do that is gazelle.com. And what's interesting about that is that gazelle does host or does oftentimes support podcasts. And maybe we should, um, um, uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, having Gazelle sponsors at some point, but uh, our ad copy would be go to gazelle.com now, gazelle.com, to sell your used gadgets for cash. But gazelle.com does a great job of taking recent iPhones, uh, higher-end Android phones, recent iPads, and if you're trying to turn it around so you can go invest in the newest, latest, and greatest technology, then it's a great place to get a kind of effortless place to sell your device. So, for example, a couple years ago when my wife was updating to a, a new iPhone, we were able to get $170 back from her iPhone, and um, it had a broken power button. Like The power button didn't work a third of the time. We were, we were totally honest with them when we let them know that. They gave us a valuation. We were able to pick up a lot more value than we try to sell it, you know, on uh, uh, local advertising, on Facebook, or on Craigslist. So, gazelle.com to sell your used gadgets to update to the latest and greatest. Awesome. And my Geek of the Week, is, actually I have two of them. One that my wife was playing with tonight is a free app for iPad called Texting Story Chat Story Maker. And so you can create your own little chats between two uh, fictitious individuals and use emojis and all kinds of things. And then it will replay that. It will create a video of that, actually, and then replay that. So she was actually doing that with her spelling words for her third grade students, and it was pretty fun. She flipped that into their seesaw tonight. So I think that qualifies my wife as a wonderful geek. Um, but that's a free app you might want to check out for your iPad. And then the other one is, I'm quite excited to say, uh, Google Camp Oklahoma City. And so this is just a little over a month away. I wanted to get the word out, but I got the final A-OK for us to be hosting this at our school. Uh, this will be a $25 day-long conference with lunch included on Saturday, November the 4th. You can follow on Google Camp OKC. We should have the online registration open uh, later this week, which pretty much means tomorrow or, or Friday. Uh, it'll be up pretty quick, and we're going to have it limited to 200. But I've had a chance, especially in Kansas, to go to several different events that have been either free or almost free. And I did uh, an event in Mays, Kansas, that was a, like, kind of like a Google Summit, but it wasn't an EdTech team sort of thing. Uh, I've done uh, stuff with the EdTech team, which is wonderful, uh, but those tend to be fairly expensive. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get some of those folks from Kansas to come down. We've got some great folks within our Oklahoma education network that are Google knowledgeable, and we've got a number of local districts in our Oklahoma City you know, greater area uh, that have given Chromebooks to lots of students. And, and so I know that we've got a need and I anticipate hunger for face-to-face -face professional development about lots of good Google things. So anybody who is anywhere near Oklahoma City, come, come uh, to the area on Saturday, November 4th and follow that 
Google Camp OKC to get updates. So Jason, where can people find you and with what frequency are you sharing these days amidst dissertation writing and other things? Well, um, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Tech Savvy Teach is my Twitter handle, and I try to post maybe 10, 15 articles of interest. Um, I do like to read to keep up both on politics and technology, especially when those things intertwine. It's pretty interesting. And I'm also interested in broad discussions about pedagogy, where I am uh, pretty consistently uh, considering things like blended learning and uh, the impact of technology in the classroom. I'm also a blogger and a professional development trainer for the Northwest Council for Computer Education on my blog at blog. .ncc.org, and I'm about to release a series on the must-have iPhone and Android apps for productivity for teachers. And I'm going to take a, um, a look at uh, my favorite apps for things like scanning documents into your phone, signing documents into your phone, keeping track of to-do lists, and other great productivity apps. So that will be coming out soon at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And you, Dr. Fryer. Hi, um, W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. I am continuing to um, share quite a bit on Twitter, and I am, as I said, excited that here in the month of November we'll have a chance to travel internationally and you know, probably do quite a bit of sharing from, from that conference in Cairo. Um, Peggy just asked in the, in the chat if we'll be doing some live streaming from, from our Google camp, and that would be awesome. So, yeah, we'll do some investigation about that and see. Uh, makes me think about bandwidth, and we may have to see about boosting our bandwidth for uh, the weekend or, or see what we can do about that. We were able to actually have that donated um, when we had a, an event, a large event, this last uh, spring. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight, as always. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 67 for September the 27th, 2017. You can download 32 kilobit light and skinny audio versions of this podcast on edtechsr.com, where you can also find, I think, uh, 480, whatever half of 720 is, uh, kilobit version video that you can download, or you can always subscribe to us on YouTube. And if indeed you have watched this wonderful episode, you can tweet my wife at S. Fryer and let her know that you have seen the tinfoil hat, which may or may not make a reoccurrence or a reappearance, but... Thanks for everything, and we wish, wish you a good night. Stay savvy and stay safe, everyone.